The scripture reading from this mor- for this morning is from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 22 through 40. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I thank you so much for the message that you have provided for us today. And I pray now for grace from the Holy Spirit to come and help us to receive it. Father, we are like soil, and you are like the rain, and we want to be good soil today. We want to receive your, the seed of the Word of God in our hearts today and receive it well. We want to receive the nourishment of the Holy Spirit today that waters that seed and causes it to prosper and grow, and we want to receive him well. So please come and help us now, Lord. Lord, the message is yours, and the burden for driving the message home is yours, and so I rest myself in you now, Father, and I give you my thanks and praise for what you will do in the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. That's the message in a nutshell today. Probably sounds uh, awfully idealistic. Might sound a little bit like preacherly exaggeration to some of you. Us preachers do have a tendency to sort of overstate things a little bit. But I don't think this is an exaggeration, and I don't think it's an idealism. I think it's a truth. And I say that to you not boastfully, because I I didn't come up with this. I did write the sentence the way that the sentence reads. 
but I didn't come up with the content of the sentence. I was taught this first by Jesus and then by others. And so I don't say it to you boastfully, but I commend this to you boldly. I do. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. That's what we'll be talking about today. In the beginning of John chapter 6, we read of a time when Jesus fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. He used nothing more than five loaves of bread and two fish to feed so many. And I know it's obvious to say, but I just have to say, that was a miracle. It's just not normal to feed thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish, right? You probably had people to your house before. I don't know about 5,000, but you probably had a lot of people over to your house before. It isn't normal to feed 100 with only that, that much. And so it's an absolute miracle to feed thousands with that much. This could only have been done by someone who was God, who had absolute control over everything in the universe and could make bread and fish do anything that he wanted them to do. This was a miracle. This was not a a normal moment. Earlier, Jesus had asked the disciples, what should we do about this situation? We have all these people out here. They they need to eat, so, so what should we do? And the disciples were dumbfounded because they understood just like we would understand that in their own power, they had no way to provide for all these people in such a short period of time with so few resources. We have no resources, we have no time, and yet the need is vast. In their own power, that was impossible. But by the power of Jesus Christ, by his will and by his hand, twelve disciples were able to hand these things out so that thousands and thousands were fed And when it was all said and done, they picked up the leftovers, and guess how many baskets were left over? Twelve. Twelve. One for each disciple. This is not an accident. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples something. When you do things by my power, I can do things that are beyond you and have leftovers. Don't rely upon your own strength. Rely upon me and watch what I can do. The crowds knew that something amazing had happened that day. They got the point. I have heard some people say, well, this wasn't really a miracle. What happened was they started passing the bread and then people who had maybe brought some bread with them and weren't going to share, they decided to share because they were inspired and so they brought the bread out and they started to share and all that stuff. But, But that's just not true. The text won't allow that. This was a miracle and the crowd knew it was a miracle. They knew that this Jesus was not a normal man. And so what they sought to do was to make him be their king by force, it says. Isn't that an interesting thing to think about? We're going to force you to be the ruler over us. (laughs) But that's what they wanted to do. Jesus' time had not yet come. And these people's perception of him was way off. And so he couldn't allow them to do that. And so he escaped up into the mountains to get away from them and to get away from their plans. It was evening time, probably the sun had already set. The disciples decided to get into the one boat that was there available at the time, and they set out onto the Sea of Galilee. And as the sun set fully and darkness engulfed the land, the wind came up and started blowing really hard. And if you've been out on a lake in the middle of a windstorm, you know what that's like. It gets really rough, and the waves are coming up and going down, but they didn't have a motor in those days. They had to row through it. And so they rode and rode and rode with all their might for one mile and then two miles and then three miles and then four miles. Now, four miles might not sound like a lot to you, but if you've ever been out on a rough lake trying to row a boat, that's a long way, isn't it? It takes a a lot of work to, 
to try to strive against the wind and the waves like that for one mile after another. And at, at about the fourth mile, they look out on the lake and they see something they just can't even believe. It shocks them, it scares them. They see somebody walking on the water, an angel or a person or something, and more so, this, this person is coming right toward them. And they're frightened, they're really frightened. Wouldn't you be too? What if you were out in the middle of Lake Malax and the wind is blowing and the waves are going and you see somebody walking on the water towards you? Wouldn't it freak you out just a little? It scared them. And Jesus knew this, so he said, don't worry about it, it's just, it's just me. Make, make some room, let me in. And the Bible says that Jesus climbed into the boat and, and it says very particularly, immediately they were on the other side of the shore. Do you, do you see the points? When they were in the boat alone, they're rowing and rowing and rowing and working with all their might to go against the wind and every mile seems like a year. Jesus comes and gets in the boat and immediately they're on the shore. No more striving. The work is done. He did something that they could not do. In their flesh, they're wearing themselves out. But with Jesus in the boat, things just happen. Things get done. Rely on my power, disciples. Don't rely on your own power. This is the lesson here. I'm the one who feeds the crowds. I'm the one who walks on top of storms. I'm threatened by nothing. I'm intimidated by nothing. I'm gracious. I have power. Rest in me. Let me do my work through you. This is the clear lesson Jesus is teaching his disciples. As for the crowds, they woke up the next morning and they knew that the disciples had left in the boats and they knew that Jesus wasn't on that boat. So the next morning they look around and they can't find Jesus anywhere and they're confused. Like, where did this guy go and how did, how did he get there? So the more boats start coming in the morning and the crowds just pile into the boats and they go over to where Jesus' disciples are because they're hoping to find Jesus again. And when they get there, indeed, they do find him. And they say to him, what, I mean, how in the world did you get over here? We know there's only one boat, so how did this happen? And Jesus, not wanting to put on a show, doesn't tell them the facts. He doesn't even address their question. He really just gets to the heart of the matter. This is something, by the way, that I just really love about Jesus. We bring our, our thoughts, our questions to him, our cares, our concerns. He often just knows exactly how to get right to the heart of the matter. Sometimes he, he doesn't even bother addressing the things that we have brought up. He just, like, like a sword piercing the soul, just gets to the point. And that's what he did with these people. He said, listen to me, I'm telling you the truth here. Truly, truly, that's what it means when he says that. He says, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. You came over here today, not because you saw a miracle from God and you're here to seek God. It's not God that you want today. You came here today because I fed you yesterday and now you're hungry again and, and you want me to give you more food. So let me give you some counsel in your life. This is good counsel. This is good food for the soul. Don't wear yourselves out for the food that's just going to spoil and fade and, 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 and fade away at some point in your life anyway. Labor for the food that lasts unto eternal life, the food that the Son of Man gives to you, for God has set his seal upon, upon this one. So the crowds, they received that from him. And they answered him and they said, okay then, and how, how do we get this food? What works should we do? that we can obtain this food. How shall we labor to get the kind of nourishment that you've been talking about here, Jesus? The Lord, again, says something very profound. If you look at John 6, verse 29, this is really the heart of where the, today's message comes from. So a few words, but very potent words. Jesus answered, 
This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Oh, how important that is. Your labor is not to strive after this food. You don't have to necessarily discover the source. You don't have to labor to get there. You don't have to make anything. You don't have to do anything. Here is your work and your only work. Your only work. Believe in him whom God has sent. The crowds understood that Jesus was talking about himself. And so they said, okay, what sign will you give us so that we may see and believe in you? What work will you do that we might understand that you are who you claim to be? Our forefathers, when they were in the desert being led by Moses, this this unbelievable stuff called manna came down from heaven. It was a miracle, and God provided for them. And in that way, we knew that Moses was a man of God. As it is written, they said, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what about you, Jesus? What, What sign will you give us that we may know that you are from God? Now, I find this question a little baffling because these were the people just the day before that sat there and watched Jesus multiply five loaves of bread and two fish to feed thousands upon thousands of people and nobody was unsatisfied. They saw this happen. You know, for us, we have to read the story and and believe. We have to pray for grace from the Holy Spirit that we might understand that this is a real story and not a fable. But these people, they didn't have that problem. They were there. They saw it happen. So how could they ask for a work when they had already seen a work? And, and, and it was a work that particularly had to do with bread, right? They, they said, we want something like manna. Well, hello, he just gave you something that was like manna just yesterday. Just yesterday. So I feel a little bit baffled by their line of questioning. But rather than commenting on the absurdity of their request, Jesus just got to the point. I love that about him. He just doesn't trifle with little things. He just gets to the point. He said, listen, I'm telling you the truth here. It wasn't Moses who gave your forefathers the bread from heaven. It was my father who gave you that bread from heaven. And today he gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so then the crowds answered. They said, well, then certainly, most certainly, give us this bread both now and forevermore. If that's the case, we want that bread. And Jesus answered in verse 35. Please look with me there. I'm going to read a few verses now. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So it's not something I'm giving you from outside of myself. It's me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. For I have come down from heaven, the true bread of heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, no one, not a single person of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. Death will not have the last word. Resurrection will have the final word. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. They shall hunger no more, they shall thirst no more, and I will raise him up on the last day. So much could be said about these words. I could give probably a series of sermons on on these words. But I want to focus our attention just on one thing here today, and I think it is probably the, the key thing. And that is that when Jesus says he is the bread of life, 
what he's telling the crowds is that this bread that comes down from God is not something I give you from outside myself. It's not like I have some product over here that I and the Father have prepared for you and we prepared lots of it and now we come and we deliver it to you and you eat and you never hunger again. He's not saying that. He's saying that I myself am the bread that God has given to you. I myself am that. You remember from our time in the Pentateuch that when the Lord gave the people manna, he said to them that part of the reason he did that was to show them that man and woman does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, God was saying through Moses thousands of years before that he is the bread of life. Food on this earth is just a detail. The true food is God himself. And Jesus is saying, listen, I am that. Do you want to eat a meal that would cause you to never be hungry again? Do you want to drink a drink that would cause you never to be thirsty again? Well, Jesus is that. And that's what he was telling the people. He is the sign from God. He is that sign. He doesn't have to do a sign. He is the sign. He doesn't have to give manna. He is the manna. He is the fulfillment of the sign of what happened in the days of Moses. He is the substance that gives us life. He is the chosen one of God. And the only work that they had to do was to believe in him. That's it. And even for that work, God would give grace. God would give grace. It is the natural religion of the human heart to work our way to God. Every other religion on the face of this earth, aside from the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a works-based religion. Every single one. Do better and God will accept you. Kim and I watched a a movie that we really enjoyed the other day. It's about a, a Muslim in India who has moved to San Francisco and he meets a Hindu and they marry and a lot of stuff happens. It was, a, it was a very heartwarming movie. I'm struggling to remember what it was called right now. My name is Khan. That's the name of the movie. My name is Khan. And in India, the last name Khan always means Muslim. It was a very heartwarming movie. But after it, as we sat thinking about what the point of the movie was, the point really was, if you just do better, it doesn't really matter what religion you're from. Just do good and God will accept you. It doesn't matter what you believe. Well, that's a false message. It's a false message. Every religion aside from the gospel on this planet says work your way to God. Jesus says don't do anything. But all you have to do is believe in me. I have already done it for you. You have nothing to do for me. There's nothing you could possibly do for me. So you come to me and you believe and even for that I will give you the grace. When the Lord says in verse 35, if you'll look there, whoever comes to me, and then he says, whoever believes in me. The original language in in the New Testament there is constructed in such a way that it means to, to come and keep on coming, to believe and keep on believing, to eat and keep on eating, to drink and keep on drinking. So the idea is not that you go to Jesus once and you eat one meal and then you're satisfied forever. But the idea is that you eat and you eat and you eat and you eat. You prefer the meal of Jesus over every other meal and that's all that you eat. You prefer the drink of Jesus over every other drink and that's all that you drink. I don't know if you're like me, but I tend to be a sort of a one meal person when I go out to certain restaurants. So Applebee's is coming to mind right now. And whenever I go there, I don't even need to look at the menu because it doesn't matter. I can't get a certain meal off my mind. And when I go there, that's all I want to eat. Jesus is saying, treat me like that. 
Uh, I'm inviting you into a way of life. Be a one meal person and let me be that meal. He's not saying that you have to be saved over and over and over again. He's not saying that. In October of, of 1986, I was saved decisively by Jesus Christ. I was brought into his family and that will be the, my destiny forever and ever it said right here that he will not lose one that the Father has given him and Jesus will hold on to me until I die and am raised up again. So he's not telling me to be saved over and over again, but what he is saying is, once you're saved, keep feeding on me and feeding on me and feeding on me and feeding on me day by day by day. Prefer me over everything and you will not feel that hunger in your soul that you now feel. Drink of me and keep on drinking and you will not feel that thirst, that craving for other things that you now feel. I am the satisfying. I am the bread of life. Eat of me and you will never hunger again. This is what he means, beloved, by those words up in verse 29, that your work is this, to believe in me and keep on believing. Come to him, look to him, depend upon him, eat of him, drink of him, rest in him, rest in him. You don't strive for Jesus. You rest in Jesus and what he has done for you. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. I do believe that is a true statement. So, are you struggling to overcome the sin in your life right now? Well, brother or sister, please listen to me carefully. The burden for overcoming that sin in your life is not your burden to bear. It is Christ's burden to bear. He may have work for you to do. He may point you in a way that he wants you to walk. And he'll give you the power to do that. But the burden belongs on Jesus' shoulders alone. You don't have to fix yourself up and then present yourself to Jesus. If you went out and bought an old 1955 Chevy truck or something like that, maybe it's all beat up. And you said, you know what, I'm going to buy this thing, I'm going to fix it up, I'm going to make it look original, I'm going to make it look beautiful again. It would not be the truck's responsibility to fix itself up for you, right? All the truck would have to do is receive the blessings, but the burden would be upon you. It would be your burden to fix up the engine and the transmission and the tires and, and the, the body and all the stuff. That's your burden. The truck's burden is just to receive in the same way, the Bible says Christ has bought us with a price. He bought us. It is not our burden to fix ourselves up and present ourselves to Him. It's His burden alone. He's the one that said, I will complete my work in you right to the day when I return again. He's the one that said, I am purifying you for myself so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Yes, he has a part for us to play, but beloved, the burden for overcoming sin is on Christ alone, not on us. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. How about a relationship? Is there some relationship in your life that you're really struggling with right now? Maybe there's some brokenness with a spouse, maybe with one of your children or children. Maybe you're not getting along with your siblings really well, brothers or sisters. Or maybe you're having problems with an extended family member or a neighbor or a co-worker or whatever. I want to tell you that if you believe in Jesus Christ, the burden for bringing healing into that relationship does not belong upon your shoulders. It's not your burden to bear. It's Christ's burden to bear. 
He may have a part for you to play. But the burden belongs on Jesus alone. Only he can bring healing where there was disunity. Only he can do that. So play your part, but rest in Christ. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. Don't receive the burden. It's not your burden. It's Christ's burden. He will do it in you. He will do it through you. But he will do it. How about a circumstance? You're facing some difficult circumstance right now. Maybe you're having problems with your house value, can't sell it or something like that. Maybe you've had uh, one of the old fabled triple whammies. Maybe your water heater broke down, your refrigerator broke down, and your car broke down all in one week. We've all had that happen. You finally work up a little savings, you're all excited, and then boom, the world seems to come apart and all your resources are gone. Who knows, maybe there's just some circumstance in your life that's challenging. I want to tell you, if you're in Christ... The burden for dealing with your circumstance is not your burden to bear. You belong to him. It is his burden to bear. He may have a part for you to play. Of course he has a part for you to play. But the burden, the weight of it all belongs upon Jesus and upon Jesus alone. And remember, this is the guy who took five loaves and two fish and fed thousands. This is the guy who walks on top of storms. This is the guy who provides for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air and said, listen, you are a lot more valuable to me than grass and birds. A lot more. He has promised to provide for you. Do you know that one of the contexts of that phrase, he will never leave you and forsake you, is a financial context. Did you know that the context of I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength is a financial context? The Lord is saying, rest in me. I know how to provide for you. Most of you know that Kim and I really have an ongoing struggle with health insurance issues. She has multiple sclerosis, and so that presents some pre-existing condition challenges for us. And we found out last April that, that we're not going to be able to have insurance basically beyond December 31st. And so we, we have a problem to solve, and it's a fairly serious one. If Kim doesn't have insurance, then... It causes us some, some pretty serious problems. And most of you know that. We've been, we've been open about all of that. What you may not know, though, is last April, when we found out about this, we just went to the Lord in prayer. When, when something hits you, what do you do? Go to God. He knows. He knows. Just talk to Him. Just go talk to Him. You don't need to stress and strive. You don't need to try to solve the problem. Just go talk to your Father. And I was talking with him, you know, one day and then the next day. And I don't know if it was four or five days into praying or something like that. Not really stressing, just talking with the Lord, asking him to provide. I didn't actually, like, make a decision or something at one moment. I just all of a sudden found that I wasn't asking him anymore. I was thanking him for providing. I just found all of a sudden in my heart, I was no longer saying, Father, please make a way. Please care for my bride. I wasn't asking anymore. I was thinking. I said, oh Lord, I know you've heard my prayer. Kimmy's my wife, and I love her. And God has given me as a husband a responsibility to provide. But you know what? Actually, the burden for that is not mine. Kim's not going to be my wife forever, but she will be the daughter of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever and ever he might use me, but the burden for providing for her belongs upon him. And he gave both of us the peace in April that he had heard our prayer. 
and had already made a way and provided. To this day, we haven't seen the manifestation of that, although our needs have been provided for all along the way. We have lacked nothing to this point. But I'm telling you, when we find the way to get this need met, I will not rejoice any more that day than I'm rejoicing right now. Because I stand before you as a man who's already had my prayer answered by my father. He's going to provide for our family. He's going to do that. Why? Because the burden for provision is on his shoulders, not my shoulders. So you're facing a circumstance, brother, sister, roll the burden on to the Lord. It's not your burden to bear. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive. Rest in Christ. Rest in him. We, talk, we were laughing last night, weren't we, babe, that we're going to live longer that way too because you know stress. You know, just don't have the stress. You don't have all that poison in your body eating you alive. Why stress? The Lord is your God. Rest in Him. So how about a positive spin on this? Maybe the Lord's opened up a ministry opportunity to you and you can't even believe it. You're like, wow, how'd that happen? I've been wanting, longing for a certain kind of ministry and now all of a sudden, boom, a door for effectual service has opened up to me and you feel excited and you're dreaming about it and planning and you're, you're praying and all of that stuff, wondering what God will do. Well, brother or sister, if that's you, I want to encourage you. The burden for bearing fruit in your ministry does not belong on your shoulders. That is Christ's burden to bear alone. He has a part for you to play. He has work for you to do. He's given you a dream and a vision and an open door for a reason. But the burden of the ministry belongs on Christ alone. Period and end of story. The only regret that I have about this particular Sunday right now is, is that it's not already September 9th because on September 9th we plan to, to uh, have a fall launch Sunday where we're going to talk about the things that we feel God is calling us to do as a church over the fall. And in fact, before I left on vacation, I told Kevin that the biggest difficulty with me leaving this year was that I didn't want to leave. I already wanted it to be September 9th because I just feel so excited about what God is doing. And I, I just wanted to engage. And I'm really glad God made me leave. And he, he made me lie down by green pastures. And he made me rest and restore my soul. I'm glad that he did that. But I wish today was that day. Because on that day, we're going to launch my book publicly and make it available to you all. We're going to highlight the, the various ministries of the church in worship and men's ministry and women's ministry, community groups, missions, whatever it is, and, and try to help you understand what we feel God is calling us to do this year. And I feel thrilled about it. We're going to bring before you and lay hands on a man who God has provided for us as a pastoral intern for this year. He's going to be finishing up his seminary degree among us and laboring among us. And I'm just so excited to reveal to you, not what we plan to do, but what we feel God is planning to do in us and among us this year. I can't wait. Now, unfortunately, this Sunday's not that Sunday, but I do want to say this about that Sunday and about this year and this season of ministry God has for us. The only way that we will enter into the fullness of the fruit that Jesus means for us to bear in 2012 and 13 and beyond is if we learn to rest in him. There's no other way. The burden for prospering worship ministry, family discipleship ministry, community group ministry, men's ministry, women's ministry, missions ministries, whatever other ministry you could list or you might have, the only burden for prospering those things belongs on the shoulders of Jesus Christ alone. It's not our burden to bear. And the way that we will see them prosper is by resting in Christ. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. 
You can't feed the 5,000, but Jesus can. Rest in him. You can't row against the winds and the waves, but Jesus can. So rest in him. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. When I was in seminary, I had a professor named James Chuck. He was a Chinese guy, an old guy by this time, and one of those just sort of proverbially old Chinese men, you know, slightly hunched over, really bushy eyebrows, all gray and everything. He had grown up in San Francisco. He was born and raised there. He was born in the first Chinese Baptist church in Chinatown there. He grew up in the church. He met his wife in that church. He had the wedding ceremony in that church. He was ordained for ministry in that church. He became the pastor and pastored that church for 40 years. And then by the time I met him, Dr. Chuck was now the pastor emeritus over at First Chinese Baptist, and he was a full-time professor at our school, and we became very good friends over the years as a mentor to a mentee. He became like a, a father to me, and he was always busting out with these wise old Chinese sayings, you know, and I loved him for it. I really loved him for it. He wasn't trying to be wise, he, he was just wise. One day I was talking with him about a ministry opportunity that I had, and I felt stressed about it. It was bigger than me. I knew God was calling me to do it, but to be honest with you, I was just afraid because I felt like there's no way I can do this. It's over my head. It's beyond what I can do. And I was just scared. I was really nervous. I was scared. I didn't want to fail. I didn't want egg on my face. I didn't want to tarnish the name of Jesus. I was just just anxious about it all. So I went to Dr. Chuck, and I can't remember where we had this discussion, but I just poured out my heart to him, and he just listened like he always did. And then he just sort of sat there in his wise way, and he said, Charles, you can fly a kite when there's no wind, but you have to run really fast. So wait until the wind is blowing, and then all you have to do is just release the string. And I, he didn't make the point for me, but I understood what he was saying. If the wind of the Holy Spirit is blowing in my life, all I would have to do is release the string and God would do everything else. If I was going to try to strive in my flesh to make the ministry go, it would be like trying to fly a kite with no wind. I'd have to run really fast, right? And it would wear me out. It would absolutely wear me out in my flesh. He was telling me the lesson today. Cease to strive. Rest in Christ. Let Christ do it. Come to Him, depend upon Him, eat of Him, drink of Him, rest in Him, trust Him. The only work you have is believe in Him. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. About a hundred years ago, a little bit more, Jesus profoundly taught this lesson to a man who in recent months has become a a sort of a, a dead mentor to me. His name is Hudson Taylor, and I've really come to love him over the last four or five months. I've known of him for many years, but I've never really drawn near to him, if you will. He was a a pioneering missionary in China, and he was the leader of China Inland Mission for most of his life, and their heart was to reach unreached peoples throughout China. From his youth, he really had a passion for Christ, and he knew this truth in his mind. He knew that Christ is all, and Christ has done all. He knew it in his mind. But like many of us, Hudson had a hard time translating that into how does he live from day to day to day. How do you you rest in the sufficiency of Christ? So he strove to read his Bible more. He strove to pray more. He strove to live a more holy life. He strove to reach and and save the lost. He strove to, 
to recruit people and train people and send people as missionaries and support them and support all the ministries. He strove to raise money. He strove to do this and he strove to do that. And there were times, he writes about this, where he just felt overwhelmed, almost crushed by the weight of the ministry. He felt crushed by the vastness of the need and the, and the littleness of the resources and just everything that was upon him. And as I've thought and prayed about his life, I really feel like God allowed Hudson to get to this point where he almost like felt the weight of the world crushing down upon him so that God could get him ready to teach him a lesson he would never forget. A, a lesson that would shape the rest of his life and greatly increase his fruitfulness. A lesson that would be used to teach and train one generation after another. This book that I'm reading now was, was written about 20 years after his death. So many thousands of people have read it. Key ministry leaders. God has really used this book to teach a lot of us the way that we should go. The Lord's setting this guy up, you see. He's allowing him to feel the greatness of the weight of the ministry. And then when the time was just right, here's what the Lord did. Hudson had been in England for a while, raising money and recruiting and stuff like that. And God said, now time to go back to China. So he went back to China. And as he arrives there, he finds a letter from a good friend of his. And the Lord has recently taught this good friend of his the art of resting in Jesus, just giving the burden to the Lord. And the friend starts his letter by saying, Hudson, oh, I wish we could be together. I'd so much rather talk about this with you face to face. It would be more fruitful, but we can't do that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what God has given me to do. And I'm just going to try to write in this letter. I'm going to try to explain to you as well as I can what God is doing in my life. And I commend this to you. Please pray about it. Think about it. Maybe the Lord will open your eyes too. And he just begins to tell him the story of how the Lord has taught him to rest in his own sufficiency, in, in the Lord's sufficiency and to forsake himself. And again, it's not a matter that they didn't understand these things in, in their minds, but this man has been taught in the school of the Spirit of Christ how to actually live in the peace of resting in Christ. And he's just pouring his heart out. And then he comes to the end of the letter, and he writes this in part. He says, Knowing that faith is the means by which we are to rest in Christ. So our only work is to believe. Believing in Christ is the way that we learn to rest in Christ. Well, the question is then, how then do we have our faith increased? How do we do this? Only by thinking of all that Jesus is and all he is for us. His life, his death, his work. He himself as revealed in his word to be the subject of our constant thoughts. And here's the key sentence. It's not a striving for faith, but a looking to the one who is faithful and has all that we need. It's a resting in the loved one entirely for time and for eternity. How do you get the faith to rest in Christ? It's not by striving for faith, but just looking to the one who is faithful. He'll do this work in you. Even the faith part, he'll do it. Look to him and keep on looking at him. Well, this was like a revolution for Hudson Taylor. This rocked his world. As he's reading the letter, the Holy Spirit is literally transforming his whole entire way of thinking, his whole entire way of life. It was a before and after moment for him, and everybody around him said that he was never the same after he read that letter and then worked out the details with the Lord. He was never the same. One person wrote this, 
They said troubles didn't worry him as they had before. He cast everything on God in a new way, and he gave more time to prayer. So he stopped working into the evening. He used to work long, long, long days. He stopped doing that. He worked less, and he prayed more. He got up earlier in the morning just so that he could be with Jesus. But now he's not like striving for something more from Jesus when he's in the Word and prayer. He's just being with his Father. He's just being with his Father. Not in the presence of Christ to try to be more spiritual, just being in the presence of Christ, just being with his God, being with his Father, letting Jesus do the work in him rather than Hudson doing a work for Jesus. The Lord was teaching him how to rest in Christ. And as I said, this was a black and white before and after moment. His dreams and responsibilities and sufferings remained, but he himself reports that the burden was gone. The anxieties that he felt in his life day by day evaporated. Now, he he was just a man, so I'm sure he had his moments. I'm sure he struggled. I'm sure it didn't all go perfectly. But the point is that in this season, Christ was teaching him how to rest and let the stress go. He had learned the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. Of this time, he wrote a letter and told his sister, He said, I don't know how far I will be able to make myself intelligible about these things. For there's nothing that's new or strange or wonderful, and yet everything is new. And the sweetest part is the rest, which full identification with Christ brings. I am no longer anxious about anything. He learned how to just crawl up into the lap of his father and rest. He had learned the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. From that time forward until literally the day of his death, he was heard saying over and over and over again, brother, sister, just roll that burden on to Jesus. Roll the burden on to Jesus. People would come with him, share their stresses, their strains, their concerns. Brother, sister, roll the burden on to Jesus. It's his burden to bear. It's not your burden to bear. And God my friends, did this in Hudson Taylor's life, not just for Hudson Taylor, but for us all. The Lord has done a work in his life that he might do a work in our lives. And he's commending this way of life to us now. This is not for super spiritual Christians. This is not for the superstars who are missionaries in far off lands. This is for every man, every woman, every child who is in Christ. This is a way of life and he's inviting you in. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive, rest in Christ. I am amazed and and overjoyed when I think about how God does what he does. When we were working our way through the book of Joshua earlier in the summer, the Lord was was teaching me these things. It's not that it was new to me. Some years ago, the Lord had kind of brought me down a similar path. But through the book of Joshua, he really began to like take me by the shoulders and speak this deeply into my heart. You, You may remember the saying from one of the sermons earlier in the summer, It went like this. When we depend upon his might, the Lord our God will win the fight. You remember that? God was teaching Joshua way back when, Joshua, if you will just rest in me, I will take the promised land. You don't have to do the work. All you have to do is believe. When we depend upon his might, the Lord our God will win the fight. 
And the Lord was using this profoundly in my life. And just at that time, I start reading John chapter 6 and John chapter 7 and John chapter 15 for a project that I've been working on. I spent hours in those texts and the Lord begins to teach me very deeply the things that I'm laying before you today. This was months ago, early in the summer. And it just so happens, right, that at the day that I was in John chapter 7, that I pick up the book on Hudson Taylor that I've been reading, and I read chapter 14 one day and chapter 15 the next day, and there I read the story of the time when God is teaching Hudson the very things that he's been teaching me over the last two or three months. And it was the Lord's way of saying, see, my son, this is a work that I'm doing in in you. I did it in Hudson, and I'm doing it in you, and I want to do it in others. And guess what passages God used in Hudson's more than any other to do this work in his life? Well, it was John chapter 6, John chapter 7, John chapter 15. The Lord is using the very texts in my life that he was using in Hudson's life to do this work in me. And he brought Hudson near to me as a mentor and a friend and an example to lead me in that way. And the Lord was very clear with me a couple months ago. I mean, it was like he grabbed me by the shoulders with loving earnestness and said, Charlie, don't move beyond this lesson until you get it. Everything rides on this. The rest of your life and ministry rides on this. Cease to strive. Rest in Christ. Lay down in the sufficiency of who he is. Do that. Now, I tell you that because I believe God is doing this work in me that he may do this work in our church. As I pray, I see that we're going to enter into a season of new fruitfulness and glory of Christ. I know that it's true. I don't know what it will look like as far as the externals go, but I know that our Father means to begin bearing fruit in a new and fresh way in the days to come. And the only way it will happen is is, is as we learn to rest in Christ. So I commend the lesson to you one more time. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive, rest in Christ. It is the key. It's the key to everything. Spend some time meditating on John 6 and 7 and 15. Listen to this sermon again. Do whatever you have to do, but let the Lord teach you this lesson. I believe that collectively as a church, this is an absolutely crucial component of what God wants to do in us in the coming days. He wants to teach us to believe and do nothing else, to eat and keep on eating, to drink and keep on drinking, to rest ourselves in the sufficiency of Christ. So let's pray about that now. Father, I really do marvel at your work, and you know that's true, Father. It's not just something I'm saying for others to hear, but something I've said to you a thousand times. just blows my mind how you do what you do, and I thank you for doing it, and I pray that you would come now by the Holy Spirit and drive this message deep into our hearts, Father, deep into our lives. Teach us not just in our minds, but in our habits, the art of resting in Christ. And I pray that for the glory of your name and the upbuilding of your church, that you would greatly increase the fruitfulness of this church. Lord, it's not about us, it's about you. Your name is on the church, the glory of Christ. We want to see your name exalted in Elk River and beyond. So please, Father, come and do a work in us that we could never do for ourselves. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.